The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I am Tyler, and I'm so excited to have you back listening to us talk about the Wheel of Time even more, even as, once again, my summaries are some people showed up and talked. Greg, what are your general takes on the early part of this book? I mean, I'm not going to lie. I I had a look at the page count at the end of these chapters, and I was like, we're 100 pages in, and this this is the amount we've had happen um so uh but i actually i i love it right it's it's time to to sit in the world and time to be together so i'm i'm having a ball so far definitely not what i expected but definitely in a good way so um to that end i think we should just dive right in i'm ready to to tackle these chapters so uh we're going to start with chapter three the peddler and i'm going to throw it right to you tyler to give us our summary Excellent. Well, the peddler begins unsurprisingly with the peddler arriving to town. Uh, Padden Fane arrives. He's surrounded by a crowd of people. Everyone's trying to, you know, get to talk to him and buy something. Um, we meet Perrin Ibarra for the first time, kind of the third of our like young male trio. So it's nice to kind of get to meet uh, the blacksmith's apprentice. And then we get a little bit of a lore dump, right? Padden Fane starts telling us about the war going on in Gildan, about the false dragon, about the Sedai being sent south. We learn all of kind of the news of the world. And very quickly, it becomes apparent that the village council is a bit concerned about things kind of getting out of control, people starting to gossip. And so they gather Pad and Fane inside. And this is when we then finally get to meet the characters we've been hearing so much about, uh, Nynaeve the Wisdom, and then she's also in, uh, accompanied by Egwene. Uh, and so we get a little bit of an interaction between them and the boys. And mostly, I think the big thing in this chapter is getting that big introduction out there. Um, But crucially, big detail at the very end of the chapter, we learn that Perrin has also gotten a coin from Moraine and so seems to have kind of been given the the signal of being significant in the same way that the other boys have. Um, And once again, I am summarizing a bunch of people talking. These summaries will get easier as things go on, I promise. Um, but Greg, what were your impressions about this chapter? Uh, I, I think, again, it it's certainly a slow pace, but I'm it's not like Robert Jordan has worn out my patience yet. Like uh, my joke about the 100 pages aside, I mean, this is only like 70 pages in at the start. Um, but, you know, it's okay to take that time, right? Like, I, I think there's certainly, uh, you know, when I assign books to my students, 
I always get a, it's so slow and no appreciation for what you gain when you take it slow, right? To look at what's there instead of what's not. So if we're looking at what's not there, it's it's plot, it's action. Uh, But we are getting a lot of really interesting world building and, you know, Again, there was just these these great moments. Uh, I think uh, Peyton Fane um, said, you know, the the great blight south to the sea of storms, um, and it was like we got this this new circle outward from the small village. I and maybe that's how I'm thinking about this. We started very tight on Rand and his father. We got to the next concentric circle, which was the village and everybody who's who's there. And now we're taking a step uh, beyond the village, beyond this region even, and speculating at this time what's going on in the wider world. Yeah, and I think I, I think you're exactly right to identify that Robert Jordan really is like taking his time here and kind of slowly working us outward. And I think for me, you mentioned like what's missing is is plot and what's missing is kind of like pushing the story forward a little bit. For me, partially what's missing here is just a a POV, a POV change, right? Like just mm. as someone who reads a lot of, you know, like relatively modern literature, I'm not used to being stuck in one character's head for 80 plus pages unless I'm reading, you know, like dense literary work that is, you know, (laughs) 24 hours in someone's day or something. And so I think this is where I'm at with this book is I love it. I think it's great. I think it's setting the table and I'm glad the table is being set as well as it is. But like, I'm just ready for someone else at this point in the book and and it'll be a little while y'all. I'm Mm. sorry. (laughs) Um, that, well, that's a really good point. And again, I think, you know, my limited experience in fantasy means I pretty much always go to Tolkien or Game of Thrones, which I've read all the books of and watched the show. And I'm not sure I want to finish the books now. <laughs> um, but uh, don't worry, you, know, you can't. <laughs> that's true. To your point, though, like those those books, the the particularly the Game of Thrones books are broken up by point of view and you get you know, that rush of excitement when you see a new character's name at the top of a chapter and then you get to read through them. And I always found myself kind of pausing at the end and flipping forward to see when do I actually get back to Arya or whoever it was. Um, so in that way, it is nice to kind of stay in Rand and and see this kind of limited point of view. And, you know, it, for an introduction, that certainly means we're not going to get overwhelmed. Um, I think experiencing the larger mythology, the larger world, as whispers from different characters to this central character works really well. And, you know, it makes it manageable. Um, I think, you know, I, I alluded to, to all the, the long list of names and things like that. I'm really, I, you know, knowing what I know in a limited fashion that this is book one of 13. I'm like, I could see 13 books taking place around this small village as the war comes to it. Or I could see us filling in the entirety of this map and seeing these, um, these these names all filled in. We'd know what the Great Blight was or the the Eel Waste or the Aerith Ocean and things like that. And, um, you know, that's exciting. That's like, oh, well, I, I want to fill in that map. And, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of like Doctor Who or something, right? Where you experience yeah. one doctor and you're like, wait, there's been 50 years of this. I want to fill in more and go sample around and see what else there is. Um, and, and, you know, it certainly establishes a world in which there could be a lot of stories, I imagine. Yeah, and I think for me, as much as it is the world gets wide in in this chapter and the next one, I think 
this chapter, you're right. The concentric circle kind of goes from like, we're looking at a town to we're looking at a city. And then mm -hmm. I think what really excites me about these two chapters, if we look ahead just a little bit, is that then what Tom Marilyn does, what the Gleeman does for us in the next chapter is says, okay, not only do we have a big wide world, but it's also deep, right? He starts mm. saying, let's not look around us. He says, let's start looking back. And we hear about all of these kind of other stories of the history of the world. So I like that metaphor of kind of the rings getting bigger because then in the next chapter, we, we start looking at spheres instead of rings a little bit. And I think mm. it does get a little denser. You start playing three-dimensional chess, you're telling me. Uh, I just wanted to get something black and white back into the mix. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Um, so help me with pronunciation. It's the war in Gaeldon? Gaeldon, I believe, Gaeldon? is the way they have pronounced that on the television show. Uh, I had always said Gaeldon, but I think it's Gaeldon. Gaeldon. Um, and so this is, at least according to Peyton Fane, this is where the action is happening, right? Yes. And so, you know, uh, again, my Star Wars mind says, oh, if there's a bright center to the universe, we're on the planet that it's farthest from. So we're way out in a little village, and there is a lot of stuff going down in this this bright center. Our, and we're meant to think that a war in... Galden, if it's a real legitimate war, it's the the circling back to the the dragon and the dark one and, and yes. the whole light versus dark that broke the world. So so a repeat of the breaking for it. Now um help refresh my memory about the Isanai. What should I have remembered about yes. them? Yes. So <laughs> at, at this point, I Sedai. I said uh, I. What we know about them at this point in, in the book is basically uh, we know that the dragon either was an Aes Sedai or in some way was associated with the Aes Sedai. We got that from Tom's story. Or not, not Tom's story, I'm sorry, Tam's story uh, back, mm -hmm. way back in, in Ravens. Um, okay. we, we also have a couple of times, I don't think we've really had this laid out really until this chapter to some degree, but we've heard a few places people respond oddly when there have been references to male Aes Sedai. So a couple of times, uh, like when uh, Tam told his story, I think one of the kids was like, well, that can't be right because the Aes Sedai were men. So mm -hmm. something's going on with the gender there. And then in this chapter, we learn a couple of other things, right? So we learn one, that the Aes Sedai are to some degree or another based in some place called Tarvalon, right? Fane says that the Aes Sedai are coming south from Tarvalon towards Gaelden. And the other thing that we learn in this chapter is that the Aes Sedai to some degree see themselves as... Um, if not protectors, to some degree, at least they stand up to some sorts of evil in the world. We know that as soon as in Gaelden there was a false dragon, that's when the Aes Sedai immediately began, began to get involved. But honestly, at this point in, in the book, this is a phrase we've seen thrown around by a lot of characters, but we don't have a lot of like concrete evidence of, of what they are or what they do. Well, and all those references to Ravens means that when you read this, you had no idea. You knew right. even less because because so much of what you just said came from that added later uh, yeah. prologue. Um, so something that stood out to me that I really liked, I liked this notion of, um, you know, we have a prophecy in the dragon reborn, but, you know, that that's like, we, we know this, like we've heard this a million times, but the part I really liked was when they said, 
well, there've been so many false dragons, right? Yep. Like, and you know, I think that's a really funny thing that like, if there is a well-known prophecy, why wouldn't every charlatan just tr- give it a go? Yeah. Um, and so they said there's been three in the last five years and it means they're kind of laughing off this newest one as it must just be another of this. And and that that was a nice little wink and a nod, a, a funny thing to to people familiar with with fantasy, certainly. Yeah. Um, but then the what differentiates a real dragon is this idea of the one power, right? Yes. And as I wrote down, the ground opens, walls crumble, men who wield the power always go mad and waste away. Yes. Um, and so certainly that resonates with the second prologue and the breaking of the world, which uh-huh. would always have been tied here. Um, but also, you know, again, it sounds at first, it sounds like a little bit like the force, but not, you know, certainly not equivalent and not, not the same scale of what we're talking about here. Um, but this idea of, you know, the, the, uh, the true dragon reborn, the dragon reborn would also go mad and waste away, um, probably to be reborn again. Right. And so the, the, again, the, the cyclical nature of all of this going on. Um, so I thought that was all really interesting and fun. I told you I'm I I I think it'll be out by the time we drop this episode, but I'm previewing a Star Wars book. I was given a galley of a Star Wars book, and I'm reading this this book. And there's this thing called the power, and there's this thing called the um the, and and uh, the ground quakes when they use it, and it wastes away. Um, the whoever uses it, I'm like. I think this author just wholesale stole this <laughs> wheel of time, which I wasn't necessarily expecting. Um, that is, I, I don't think I've given enough away to say like um, that is uh, Star Wars Padawan, which is a young adult book coming out in July. So uh, if people want to see if I'm crazy and and they cribbed some notes from this. Yeah, you're welcome to look at that. Uh, yeah, I just talked a lot though. Anything there you want to bump off of? Anything you want to respond to? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you picked the right thing. I don't want to talk too, too much about the one power simply because I know that I know what it is and how it works and I don't want to be jumping in too much. But I think that that detail you picked out is just spot on right, right? What's going on with men who use the power? How does that relate to the idea of a false dragon? And then I think also as, as you're kind of, you know, talking about all of these people kind of like blowing this off, they're saying like, oh, it's just another false dragon. It's really nothing to be, you know, super, worried about um they they even mention i think that of the like three false dragons in the last five years i think only one or two of them could use the one power it was unique that this person would and so i think the fact that they're blowing that off in spite of all of that extra detail i think you're exactly right to kind of pick up on on that notion um i had a couple things from this chapter that i just quickly wanted to to bounce to if you don't mind just like a couple quick hits um first off um i just need to mention uh if you are someone who loves the television show of the wheel of time and hates the casting of the television show of the wheel of time i'm very sorry i have some bad news for you in this chapter we learn that Nynaeve and Egwene have dark hair dark braids brown eyes and the same dark coloring as many other people in the area Mm. i'm sorry but this is a culture that holds braiding your hair as something important and sacred these are people of color. Just get used to it. I'm sorry. <laughs> that sounds like what I've heard going on and on in many fandoms of yeah. late. And the fact that we kind of default to kind of Northern European beauty standards and just assume it's so. Um, 
that's really interesting. I liked the the hair braiding. I liked that that was the indication that oh shit, uh, I don't know if we're cursing on this. Bleep bleep me out with a cool wheel of time sound effect if you need to. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, I like the idea that uh, Egwene, um, that's the indicator that she's of marrying age too. It's yeah. like Rand's like oh right, like I'm on the prowl, which means she's on the prowl too. So uh, that that's there as a part of that. Um, and I think, you know, I've just a note about the fact that the wisdom clearly has the power here, right? Like she, you know, her reaction to the half stories that she was getting relayed through the boys and then is like, well, I'll go take care of the village council. Like it was very clear to me that um, they, they're almost, the village council is allowed to like play their little games, but the women's circle is going to undercut and control whatever they want to do. And so I'm excited to see more of that dynamic because that's an unexpected bit of, of politics in, in many ways. And, and I know we talked in the last episode about Robert Jordan playing a little bit with, with gender roles and, and stereotypes and so on. Um, and then my last note for this chapter is just, uh, it says, have Tyler explain the dark friends. uh i can't too much now um other than just to say like when you key in on phrases like you know if if people are talking about dark friends the nice thing about this world is that it is kind of a world with lots of black and white right and Mm -hmm. so while there are certainly shades of gray all over in a lot of like fantasy settings, I feel like if someone talked about dark friends, I feel like you would default to like, is this an organization? Is it a, you know what I mean? In the wheel of time, if someone is called a dark friend, that probably means they are the friend of something dark, right? Mm. Um, the way I would interpret like someone talking about someone or someone else being a dark friend is it is like the equivalent of calling someone like a Nazi, right? It's just like, okay. you, are, you are super dark in this world. If, if that's the the label that's being assigned to you but you know you're assigning our podcast a strong anti-nazi stance and and i'm here for it i think that'll be our first round of t-shirts uh when the time comes <laughs> you know if there's one thing that i want to do it's obviously drawing controversy and so that's why i've decided <laughs> to go anti-nazi on episode anti-Nazi. three wow uh okay uh any other notes from you on this chapter no i think that pretty much covers the the main things that i wanted to talk about um i just want to hear one more what was just like a random phrase that you jumped in on and were like pad and fane talked about this i need to hear more oh i think i hit all the ones i wrote down oh no uh i do have just under his speech it just says how big will this get which (laughs) i guess that's a that's what she said joke but uh it was it was like you know this it kind of struck me at that moment like Oh, I'm, I'm embarking on something huge. Like, you know, when your friend asks you to read, you know, 15, 600 page books, it took until about page 90 where I was like, Oh, this is actually going to be a big thing that I'm doing. (laughs) Uh, uh, my last note, just, I I enjoy it says exposition and table setting, but engaging. And I think that's where I'd leave it. It's like, yep. I'm, it hasn't lost me yet. It still has my, my emotion. So, all right. I'm turning the literal page in my show notes to uh, chapter four, The Gleeman. Hit us with another one of your 
beautiful summaries about a person arriving and talking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Gleeman is exactly what it sounds like. We enter Tom Marilyn, uh, he of the white hair, spry, somehow both old and young in every description that we get. Um, he begins by talking to what is now our foursome, so Rand, Matt, Perrin, and Egwene. Um, initially, he's kind of teasing them. He's kind of like poking fun at how knowledgeable they think they are about the world, when, as you say, we are about as far from the bright center of the universe as we possibly can get. Um, eventually, he kind of goes from just conversation mode into very kind of showman mode. We see Tom uh, juggling, kind of hinting, working up the crowd, getting people to pitch suggestions. Uh, he suggests a couple of stories that he's going to tell, which we are definitely going to spend some time talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and then he notices Moraine, gets very quiet. They have kind of a bit of a conversation. It's clear something's going on between the two of them. And then the village council emerges and Tam tells Rand, we're going back to the farm. And they have a brief conversation. Most notably, Tam reveals that he believes Rand about the man in black and that he's found that at least three other boys in the village have also noticed uh, the rider in black. Um, so that's what happens in the chapter. Uh, what was your big takeaway, Greg? Uh, again, here is where it really stood out to me that um, gender was mattering a lot, right? That was Greg sneezing. <laughs> uh wait it didn't mute i thought i muted the mic you, you did i was just telling oh, okay. you what the silence was <laughs> i was like no i have a fancy uh, mute button for that and now we can't edit it out uh welcome to live <laughs> podcasting to tape uh so gender and age mattered a lot here so it's the young boys who have seen this threat um i don't know my mind kind of turned on that for a moment and how you know oftentimes especially in modern history, it's young men who have kind of limited prospects that are getting radicalized for lack of a better term and uh, term um, everywhere from child soldiers to, to jihadish to, uh, you know, the right wing social media trolls uh, in America. Right. Uh, yeah. Not controversial at all. No, no, not at all. Uh, but you know, it's, it's men like this who see a threat that may or may not be there and ra become radical to respond to it in whatever way, um, including, but not limited to just like trolling celebrities online. Um, so that stood out to me a lot. I think I liked this Tom, uh, Maryland guy just for, um, how kind of awful he was, right? Like the yeah. way he enters and is just like such attitude about treatment. It's this theme that the world is kind of fallen or or maybe again, we're, we're in a uh, podunk town way out, away from who would treat a gleeman well. Um, but uh, all of his kind of attitude there and then really didn't seem to want to give the kids anything until he found like, well, if I give them a little, then, yep. then they'll promote my show. So, so clearly out for himself. Um, so yeah, I think those were my general impressions. What I want to throw to you on, um, is this idea. So Rand has gray eyes. Yes. And you just said last chapter, you reminded us that this is a world of black and white, light and dark. And so this is the man who walks in the middle, or this is, this is noted as odd. And I think it yeah. stood out to Tom Marilyn. So fill in whatever you can about that. 
Yeah, I mean, to some degree, this comes down to the descriptions of Nynaeve, Egwene, and Perrin that we got in the previous chapter. And those descriptions of all three of those characters look very, very similar, right? They're described as having dark hair. They're described as having brown eyes. They're described as having um, relatively dark skin. Um, I think the way it's written, you know, historically, a lot of people have kind of interpreted the darker skin in the two rivers as like an olive complexion. I think you can read it as, you know, uh, a person of color, you know, someone who had like, you know, Hispanic or black uh, complexion. But, you know, I think Rand is not any of those things, right? Mm -hmm. The details we've gotten on him so far are taller than anyone in town, paler than anyone in town, red hair, gray eyes, right? And so Rand very much stands out, I think, in the environment of the two rivers. And the reason it keeps coming up is because there are so many other people who are now standing out in the two rivers in similar ways, right? Um, so we see Tom also has light eyes. We see Rand mentions that Lan also has light eyes. Um, we see a couple of mentions about relative heights of people and how Perrin and Rand really stand out in the two rivers as being tall. And that's especially true when you compare them to like Moraine, but it when you compare to Lan, it's, oh my God, there's someone taller than these people in town. And so I think what we're getting here is just repeated little hints of like, something's a little different about Rand, something's a little different about Tam, little details here and there, but they're starting to add up, I think, by the time that we're getting four chapters of world building and character development, they're going to add up to us starting to have some pretty big questions about a couple of these characters. Hmm. Excellent. Um, so then the the main quote I wrote down from this uh, chapter is, I believe this is Tom talking, I have all stories, ages that were and will be. Yes. And um, what I liked about that phrasing and, and what I've learned about the wheel of time so far is that is literally true. That's yes. not him saying I have stories from history and kind of fiction from the future, um, speculative fiction. That's him saying, no, I have a set of stories that were true and will be true uh, again. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I really liked that as a trick and as a play on, on these themes. Um, but uh, maybe, I mean, obviously talk about whatever you want, but I'd love to let you use that as an opening to unpack a little bit of his stories and, and what he shared. Yeah, I identified four stories that very clearly play into what you're describing, right? The idea mm. of the past is future, right? So the first one that jumped out at to me is he says that he is going to tell the story of Len, who flew to the moon in the belly of an eagle of fire. Hmm. Any idea who we're talking about here? I mean, it, it just sounds like my average Saturday night, right? <laughs> hey, babe, you want to go uh, fly to the moon in the belly of a... Uh, so uh, we're going back to one of the prequels, or the prologues, I would oh, imagine. Oh, we are going back to the 1960s. I think this is John Glenn and the Eagle Has Landed. Oh, I see what you're saying here. Hit me with it again, the name uh of it. Uh, so he tells the story of Len, who flew to the moon in the belly of an eagle of fire. Okay. He tells, landed. he tells the story of Mosk, the giant, whose lance of fire could reach across the world and his war with Elsbeth, queen of all. I okay. believe Mosk is Moscow. The yeah. lance that can reach across the world is nuclear weapons. And Queen Elizabeth is being mistaken for the leader of America. Hmm. Okay. 
Uh, our third. This is this is like I, I feel like I'm hearing somebody being like Nostradamus knew it all. <laughs> like, like he had it in his notebook. See, this this secretly means 9-11. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the, go the, ahead. It, it's actually the fourth in the chapter, but it's the third that I could decode. I think this is the clean one. I think this is the one that will make it clear to you that this is what he is doing. Uh, right. Because he says that he is going to tell the tales of Ma Therese the Healer, mother mm. of wondrous Ind. If mm. that is not Mother Teresa of India, I don't know what he's referring to. So, so he changed it enough that all of this went over my head or right. maybe a toddler was screaming at me at that moment and I missed it. But so, so the implication you're saying is that this is not Middle Earth. This is not, you know, Westeros. This is our world and we are a part of this story and the things we know and the history we know are a part of this world, which I was not expecting. I think if we go back to my terribly wrong predictions, yeah, I just assumed this was a pure fantasy world at all. Okay. And so if that is true, then this would then by its nature be both before our time and after our time. Yes, <laughs> like, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, interesting. Okay. Okay, I'm going to wrap my head around that a little bit more. Okay. The, the note on the stories I wrote, and this is real Greg deep thought here, lots of arters, right? They mentioned yep. a, like a lot of arters. And, and it's worth noting that's likely intentional, right? In the same way that we hear the story of Len flying to the moon or Ma Therese healing people in Ind, odds are pretty good that the story of Arter we're, we're, healing, we're hearing about is either the same story that eventually evolved into the King Arthur legend mm -hmm. or is some other turn of the wheel where Arter in one life was the Arter we're reading about, Arter Pendrag Tenrial, and yeah. in another life was Arthur of the Round Table. That that was what I was just going to look at because I knew once that there was a kind of bastardization of Pendragon there. So yeah. yeah, that, that was the one I was just grabbing my book. If you saw in the video to think through. Yeah. All right. So, so now I really understand when you're saying we're working with spheres here, we're going yeah. into this in a totally uh, new and different way. Um, I actually need yeah. you to tell me if you can decode the fourth story, because okay. I have no idea what this is. Oof. So, all right. So he leads off with Len who flew to the moon in the belly of an eagle of fire. And then he says, and his sister, Salia, that's S-A-L-Y-A, -A, walking among the stars. Salia walking among the stars. Well, Sally Ride? Uh, yeah, because one of the things that I just realized when you were repeating the part about Len is John Glenn didn't go to the moon. He didn't, right. These right? stories he, are all bastards. So yeah, so this is, so again, it's through the ages. So so the name was Sal, Saliri? Salia, S-A-L-Y-A. I mean, certainly Sally Ride makes sense to me, who walked among the stars. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that this then would suggest, and I don't know what I'm implying about our world, but that the 20th century was like the peak of the world <laughs> and, and like worthy of legends. I mean, talk to my boomer family members and they'd probably be like, yep, yep, they got it right. Uh, but I do think that that's an interesting thought to say like, oh, this is like, you know, 
our heroes for lack of a better term from our society are like as great as the society ever got. And we're legendary to this, this far fallen kingdom. Um, Now I will note, I think you're absolutely right. What we live in now would absolutely have been the legends of this kingdom. It's worth noting in the world of the wheel of time, there is a thing called the age of legends and I'm pretty Mm. sure it's not our world. Just simply because Luz Theron lived there, right? We've seen one scene from what is now called the Age of Legends, and it clearly does not, like, no one is creating volcanoes out of the one power in our time frame that I am aware of. Hmm. Well, Elon Musk, probably. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. which which billionaire has slipped into becoming a Bond villain of late? Um, Okay, okay. Yeah, so actually, I think this is the first time in this podcast where I'm thinking I need to go back and reread that a little more closely and think through some of that. I think it was easy for me to just be like, yeah, he's just mentioning a lot of fake stuff and continuing on. And and Um, most of it is, right? There are probably 20 titles in there and four of them fit, but I I just think it's a cool detail that's worth worth digging into. Absolutely. so other notes on this chapter, there's clearly some strife between the council and the circle, as we alluded to last time, but it seemed more focused on Moraine here, right? So the women's circle really dislikes Moraine. Is that the or right at, read on that? Or at least Nynaeve does. I, I, I'm okay. never quite sure in this chapter because Rand isn't critically evaluating how much of it is the women's circle and how much of it is Nynaeve. I don't quite know how to, right? Yeah. Robert Jordan does a very good job of third person limited, which means I don't have that information. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's exactly the read is that it seems like the village council is really concerned about the war and Nynaeve and possibly the women's circle are much more concerned about all of these strangers being in town, most notably Moraine and Lan. And yeah, that, that clearly seems to be the, the source of some conflict. Sure. Uh, the kids are going to join the per- patrol and yep. the goal of the patrol is basically to figure out how much of this is accurate but also to kind of flush out whatever is in the bushes around the village and might threaten the festival um but then just a particular moment where they rethink the dark rider a bit yep. and say what if he's not some kind of supernatural threat or the dark one but is instead a refugee from the war potentially a thief um and all of that kind of made me think well it had the feel of like a red herring. It's like, yeah. no, let's keep our eye on the ball. This guy is really uh, a villain. Uh, but also, you know, perfectly, you know, it, it tends to be the if they tell you the answer, then that's not the answer. Right. So I suspect it's not just as simple as a refugee. It might be somebody fleeing from the conflict or spilling into that. But I also just kind of took that all as a big hint that the kind of seclusion of this village is over and we're going to be drawn into these larger world events uh pretty quickly yeah and and i actually kind of tying into that i really liked the section i think it was just before what you're describing uh where tom is talking to the boys in Egwene, and we get a feel for why the two rivers is kind of so isolated right they talk about like there's mountains to the west and Mm -hmm. there's like a swamp to the east and then to the south there's rapids and then a hundred miles of kind of like unincorporated forest and then the north is pretty much the only way into the area and so i think it's 
it's both interesting to think of just how isolated they are and yet they they're still worrying about this war that feels mm. like it's a half a world away but then i think it's also a good reminder this is a, a decent chance to pop out that you know map that's at the beginning of the book and realize geographically Galden and the two rivers are actually relatively close to one another there are just some intervening uh you know pieces of geography that make travel over that area distant hmm. but it's not as if we're looking at something that's literally on the other side of the world right Galden is basically a neighbor to the two rivers if it weren't for the many many barriers that stop people from crossing from one to the other well, and you're reminding me too that the boys bragged about basically having covered it all, right? That, right. That, that they've been deeper into the swamp than anybody else has. They've been further uh, into the forest or, or know the forest better, which is yeah. part of why they're ready for the, the, uh, the patrol and, and to, to be a part of this larger process. So, yeah. um, and then <laughs> I'm gonna just confess, I don't know, my last note for this chapter is just the word unity. Um, which <laughs> I think the character spoke a lot of unity that that was the goal. Like let's unite, let's make a plan. Yeah. Um, and I think in a book that is so defined by dichotomy, that yeah. unity then becomes a really interesting theme to, to kind of end on. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, again, the primary conflict here seems to be light and dark, but what if it is instead, you know, unity in, against division and what will that lead to? Um, so yeah, I, I liked this chapter, but I did kind of close that out saying like, all right, I'm ready to get going. I'm ready for this plot to start taking over a bit more, uh, so that we can move forward. Fair enough. I mean, I have one more thing that I wanted to chat about with yeah. regard to this episode, if you don't mind, although I will just say, as we're talking about kind of like the chapter kind of closing on unity, I do think it's very interesting and very telling of, to some degree, how this storytelling happens that we get the boys gather together and they're like, we are a united front. We are going to get mm. things done. And then two pages later, it turns out that the village council has been doing exactly the same thing. So the simultaneous, we are going to be united and solve this problem together while having two groups saying that independently is, is both <laughs> effective and kind of ironic. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention is a moment towards the end of this chapter where Tom notices Moraine is in the crowd for the first time and his immediate reaction is to stop performing and then to have a conversation with Moraine, more or less. And so I wanted to start just getting whether you kind of keyed in on that, whether that was a dynamic that you had thought about. And then I also want to just talk briefly about the conversation they had. Uh, I remember noting particularly that, you know, on paper, sure, uh, as a phrase, uh, it, they seem like they should be friends, right? Like right. Moraine was interested in stories. Here's the storyteller. And I think one of the boys essentially says that like, yeah, like you should, you guys should get to know each other. Like you, you, you like stories. Um, but I definitely noted that there was a formality there that hadn't been in the rest of the chapter. And I think at moments I thought this seems like it's going to be confrontational. And then he was more deferential, yep. which considering he started the chapter talking about his treatment, then it's like, okay, so this is somebody who he respects, which yep. maybe because she is of a class that wields power elsewhere, or may just be that, um, you know, it's, it's an angle for him, right? Yep. Like, Oh, I've always wanted a patron. I was just reading a book about patronage and, 
in early modern Europe, the things yeah. you read when you're a boring academic. Sure. Um, and so that struck me as like, oh, he's looking for a patron. He's looking for somebody to help him. And, you know, if she wants stories, he wants to perform stories. And, you know, there, there could be a mutually beneficial relationship there. Totally. First off, when, when Tom sees Moraine immediately, he freezes, right? And then I think mm. you, the read you have is exactly right, right? There's something about class going on here. There's something about the social structure. But then I think once we identify that like maybe they're both of upper class, maybe they're both from like outside. And so they like know something about each other or they, like you say, maybe they just have similar interests. But as soon as that gets identified, they start talking over the heads of everyone in the mm. village. And the conversation basically goes like this. It's Moraine says, no, I don't take any disrespect from what you said. Um, you know, you seem like a nice enough person. Um, and then she basically says, she calls him Master Bard. She tells him to call me simply Moraine and then says, I'm a stranger just like yourself. Tom's response is to say, I trust you'll like my stories as much as everyone else does. And Moraine says, and first Rand reads that Tom is not pleased at this point. And then Moraine's response is, I like some stories. I don't like others. I mm. trust you'll tell the right stories. And Tom's like, yep, definitely. And then the thing fades out, right? Mm. But this is very clearly like a two or three set of dialogue for each character back and forth where they are having a conversation about how he's going to refer to her or what stories he's going to tell or what stories he's not going to tell or they're clearly saying something to each other that both the reader and the town are not completely picking up on at this point interesting and i'm gonna confess to having a Star Wars prequel thought, which is it reminds me a little bit of of Jango Fett and Obi-Wan Kenobi talking to each other in the apartment where they both understand that they are talking about how, hey, dude, you just tried to assassinate the, the senator. Yep. Uh, and yet they keep it on a civil level, that kind of undertone and that kind of hinting. I mean, my mind naturally goes to the darkness and the light. And she right. is on one of those sides and doesn't want the other even represented themes of propaganda or of, of slanted representation kind of come through there, right? That they're like, well, there's one history to tell or there's one set of stories to tell so that you can reinforce the side you're on. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of that went over my head um, or is, is escaping my memory now, but certainly feels like, um, you know, as we build towards, I assume this festival, um, that there's going to be a lot of kind of let's pan around the crowd and see how everybody is reacting to everybody else and see if we can kind of sort out our sides fully, uh, yeah. among these people and fit that into the larger world. Yeah. And I think that's definitely the direction that this is heading. And so I think for me, I just always like to pick up what are these like weird, like you're saying, we're going to get the full picture of what's going on. And so for me, I'm always curious, how is Robert Jordan telling us some of these little things 15 chapters before they actually come up? So I apologize if sometimes I, I do the podcast version of vague booking where I'm like, let's talk about a thing, but I'm not going to say anything about it. Uh, any, good. any last thoughts on, on this chapter? 
I mean, again, hopefully when people are listening to this, it's like, oh, they didn't doing great. They have weekly releases, but you know, a hundred pages in it's, it's a little in doubt when you start a project like this. And, you know, um, uh, so we are also kind of figuring out our rhythm and plan as, as we are practicing in these episodes. So I think we're settling on, we're going to try to do about two chapters or roughly 30 pages each episode. Um, we had waited to fully announced that until we were sure about how much, how long our episodes were. Um, and that should help us keep it to under an hour uh, most weeks, uh, unless there's something really big going on. Um, so we hope that's a pace people can keep up with. Uh, we already have talked to some people who are grabbing the audiobook to follow along with, and that's a great way if you don't have the time to to read. Um, but we, of course, want to hear from all of you about what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and, and how we can improve this, because we want this uh, to be a community. And, you know, it might be a little delayed uh, to hear us respond to the feedback we received, but I promise you will be listening to it. Um, we're academics, so we're used to getting our evaluations at the end of the semester and then course correcting. So, so you know, like five or six episodes in, you'll hear a real uptick in quality. So uh, that's it. No I make no promises about upticks in quality. I just want to be clear about that. Uh, and yeah, I think you're exactly right about the pace, Greg. Um, and if that's the case, then next week, uh, I believe we are going to be reading Chapter 5, Winter Night, and Chapter 6, The Westwood. And, and let me just say, while I can't guarantee groundbreaking, world-changing plot, I can tell you in Chapters 5 and 6, there will actually be plot. So get super pumped. Uh, it is time to finally get into what is potentially happening on winter night at the festival and see where things finally go in this world rather than just seeing the world. So hopefully we'll see you in the next episode. You'll get a chance to hear us talk about this. And like Greg said, please let us know what's going well, what's going poorly. And we look forward to seeing you next time through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.